0: Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. i never going back to my old school. That courtesy of Steely Dan in 1973 is just one of countless philosophies on education put forth over the ages. Socrates, Van Halen, Twisted Sister, I mean, dropping out to go to Silicon Valley. So is four-year college overrated? Should more youngsters be directed to community colleges and vocational programs? Why the hell did I torture my 17-year-old self in AP Calculus? We ponder these and many other meaning-of-life contemplations with a pair of teachers. This is John Merton, here in studio, publisher of Churchill People's News. Previously, he was a sixth-grade public school teacher. Thank you for joining us. Oh,
1: thank you, Robin. It's great to be here.
0: And Eric Martin, director of the University of Richmond's Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program and founder of, uh, founder of 80 Amps, where he's also an angel investor. Uh, thank you, good sir. Thank you for having me, Robin. But before we dive into this, uh, gentlemen, first let me get some Steely Dan out of my system. Bear with me, all right? California tumbles into the sea. That'll be the day I go back to Winnedale. All right, now, either of you are, are free to just walk out of the studio right now if I freaked you out. but That's how I break the ice. So um, you can tell me what you think of that, Eric, or you could tell me what you think about this proposal from the White House last week where Obama's broaching the idea of free two-year community college. Uh, what do you make of it?
2: Well, the details are still fairly you know sketchy. But the general concept of promoting uh, two-year education, to me, seems like a terrific idea. That Legitimizes the associate degree in a way that it hasn't been before, and frankly, gets people into the higher education system that probably would not have pursued it at all were it not for this sort of program.
0: Now, you you were the one who told me over a coffee several months ago, uh, you know, a couple years ago, actually, when I first moved here, that we here in Virginia have a really unique community college arbitrage. If you can ignore the stigma coming out of high school that you're going to a two year program, you know, you go to John, uh, Sergeant Reynolds or some other community college here be a decent student and get guaranteed transfer into a world-class
2: university like UVA or William & Mary. That's correct, Robin. It's, it's a terrific program. And the state of Virginia has worked with the, the public schools and a few private schools in the state of Virginia to create that, that opportunity for people to attend a two-year community college. And depending on the school that you want to apply to, um, achieving a particular grade point average while you are in that community college guarantees you admission to any of the schools in the state of Virginia. So. Uh, University of Virginia, William Mary, Virginia Tech, George Mason, and on and on are all available to you. Most of those schools would be out of the range of many students that would choose to go to uh, community college directly
1: out of high school.
0: Now, Mr. Merton, if I may ask you, yeah. uh, how many years were you at uh, this public school?
1: Uh, nine years. Nine, nine years nine.
0: in a historically segregated part of uh, Richmond sure. in the Churchill neighborhood. Uh, may I ask you at the outset, were you, were you more of... Um, um, uh, an Edward James Olmos type or a Michelle Pfeiffer type? I mean, did you stand
1: and deliver? Uh, no, no. I, the um, I, I I hit the classroom like a like a big brother. I think it was uh-huh. fun. Um, we enjoyed we enjoyed the class. We enjoyed learning. Um, I had real problems with discipline, like my students.
0: Talk to me about the the kinds of students you bring in, the socioeconomic backgrounds, the peculiarities at home. I mean, there are sixth graders if you go to the Burbs, that are. Thinking about IB programs and how to be on the fast track to go to the governor's school. And then there are the students you had.
1: Well, I mean, there, there's, there's two things to that. One, well, um, the school I was at, we pulled from Creighton Court, Fairfield Court, Mosby Court, Highland Park, Blackwell, Churchill, Fulton. It's low income. Um, it's 99% free, free or reduced lunch. Um, 99% free or reduced lunch. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, so you have you know, students whose parents didn't go very far educationally who may have had a really mixed relationship with school themselves. Um, there are some who have older brothers and sisters who have got, gone to college or in college. Um, more who would have older brothers and sisters who were in jail, though. Um, the, the thing, though, is the school I was at, we didn't have all the students that we were zoned for. You know, we we're pulling probably about 70% of the students that we would get.
0: I'm thinking or, that season of The Wire, surely you get asked about it a lot.
1: Uh, well, that was like my first year teaching. You teaching. Know, uh-huh. I, I, saw, I saw that uh, Prez Serious, man. And um, it was personal. I had to turn the sound down. There's a scene where the girl gets cut in class and all that. I had to unmute that while I was watching it because it was so close to reality. It and, really was. I mean, it was a little more violent, directly violent than I saw. A little more. But his sense of being, like, in over his head. Um, Why did you leave? Ah, I, became, to, to, I, I became disillusioned the past few years. I felt like I was exerting, uh, exerting a lot of energy to very little effect. Um, but also personally, we had a baby, and I got to stay at home and with and be a dad, so that was kind of awesome.
0: Eric, we talk about the varying caliber of, of of schools here. There's this there's this quip in town that the biggest favor uh, they're gonna hate me for saying this. Uh, biggest favor that Richmond Public Schools did to uh, uh, the, the huge private school industry here is is so underinvesting in their schools. I mean, there's such a disparity. If you go up the River Road corridor, you have a handful of good schools in in uh, really top neighborhoods. Uh, but if you go into parts of town, you know, this has traditionally been a segregated town. We were the capital of the Confederacy, uh, where Mr. Merton taught was it from stone's throw, from, you know, uh, slave jails and a slave cemetery. Um you know, that's that's one of the remaining peculiarities about the United States. So much of, of the caliber of school you attend is is dependent on your tax base.
2: Well, that's right. And, and the disparity is quite large. I have children that attend private school as well as public school um, in the city of Richmond. And I would say that um, we've had the good fortune to have them attend the very best of the public schools and the very best of the private schools. And those educations are quite similar. Um, If you put your effort into either of the best public or private school systems, you'll do quite well. The problem, of course, is that uh, the schools that our children attended, even at the public level, are quite different than what you would find in some other parts of the city of Richmond, or even some of the surrounding counties. And that's really the big challenge. And And it is a historic issue. Uh, the schools that are the very best in the city of Richmond have, for the most part, been the best for many, many decades. And the schools that are the most challenged, for the most part, have been challenged for just as long and longer. And very little, I think, has happened to be able to make up that difference. I had a
0: really eye opening conversation with uh, a person I met here, a fellow father of a young child who uh, didn't even think twice about the inevitability of K through 12 education for his son costing upward of $300,000 when all said and done. You know, he, he doesn't make $70,000 a year, but he says, you know, it, it's very weird. He's like, this is just the way it's done here. His grandparents are going to help pay for it. And nobody really, you know, from a business sense stops to say, well, net present value, $300,000, that's $300,000 that he could you know, he or she could roll over, could use to, to to buy a house, there's a significant opportunity cost. And to think $300,000 before you even get to the the big question of four-year college, which sets you back, you know, if we think T-18 now. Um, so I don't understand that, Eric. I don't understand this. You know, you, you'll even meet people who are nominally wealthy. Some people I've met are making $50,000 a year. They'll spend $30,000 to send their kids to, you know, St. Christopher or Collegiate.
1: Um, well, you look at from the other side, too, the the, lost, um, the cost of the school of not having that student at the public school, you know, the school I was at, if we had all of the middle class students that were lived in the area at my school, the students who are, I'm sure, doing well at their own private schools, our school would be do better. Would, would do better. Yeah, you know, but, but there would be a carryover effect. I do be remember, huge.
0: you know, being in put in. Uh, I, I went to a public school uh, b- before college, and there was this issue. We had busing. We had people on free and reduced lunch. I didn't realize that why it was happening. I mean, why I had to take a dollar bill out at the lunch line, and why other people said their names to the cashier Rosie and got them crossed out. I'm not trying to be facetious or anything. Good it choice. was a, it was a beautiful, youthful <clears throat> innocence of the fact that we were mixed in this program, but then we were tracked differently. Mm. Uh, parents could come in and say, "I want my student to be in." Mrs. So-and-so's class. And I tell you that the predominantly African-American and Hispanic students in South Florida would find themselves in a, in a kind of a none-of-the-above homeroom class. And they were never tracked in kind of highest reading, highest math. So there were ways around this. So now we end up with a none-of-the-above
1: enti- uh, entire school, you know?
0: Right. But there, there are, you, you talk to parents, uh, you know, in, in their very candid moments, Eric, in this town. and They say, I didn't want my son or daughter to be an experiment in busing. You know, you get you get uh, twelve years, and you can't screw this up. It's intensely competitive.
2: Well, that you know, the the reaction to busing is is a a very very old story. Um, not that it has left. The I mean, psyche. it happened in
0: Boston. It happened in Northern sure.
2: California. This is around the country. All right, and and and, and busing. Um, it was in, in conversation with someone last night. He described it as having been done in a well. For well-intentioned reasons to try to to correct and and rebalance, but at the same time, the point of view of the person with whom I was speaking was that, in fact, was what pushed the private school growth in the city mm-hmm. uh, was the idea not just that their child um, uh, might be better off in private school, but their their child might be better off than in a public school that was not, remotely related to the area in which they lived. And in fact, I have relatives in Richmond who lived in the near west end of Richmond who went to school on Churchill during that period of time. And I can recall visiting them and thinking how interesting it was to see them in an environment that was completely outside of the environment in which they lived their day-to-day life. Um, They all turned out to be really great kids. by the way. But that that was sort of the, I think, the heart. And you still have people think about that um, busing situation, which was designed to right what was clearly inequalities in the school education balance. Today, <clears throat> that's not the way we, you know, address the problem. But I, I suspect that you would say that we're not really addressing the problem in the inner city schools at all.
1: No, The, um, I mean, we had an outreach program a couple years back. RPS was trying to get... uh, Richmond Public Schools. It was trying to get um, parents to choose Richmond Public Schools instead of a private school alternative. And um, it was uh, some kind of PR campaign. I don't think it had any effect. I mean, I see see the girls, uh, kids waiting to catch the bus to their private schools or the IB program, um, Franklin Military, the the choice schools. I mean, the students that get to go there from our neighborhood instead of coming to their neighborhood school. And... um, don't we
0: see? Don't we see many school boards opting to put elite feeder magnet programs or IB programs
1: in at-risk schools? Um, we have a. We've just starting next year. Chimborazo Elementary School in Churchill will be perhaps the first in the state, I believe. Um, full IB program elementary school. Um, we're really quite excited about that.
0: Chimborazo Hill, man, that's a spectacular view. You have all these eateries nearby. Yeah. You know, there there's crazy stuff going on. They, they they had a group of goats last spring or something feeding i mean that that's the that's the interesting experiment um, you know going on in church hill is that you have this gentrification people moving to an area when you tell uh, old school richmonders kind of west of the boulevard that you know church is really happening they're like seriously church hill church hill yeah. they're like yeah man you know you got to go to proper pie you got to go to these places um, and and that would be the interesting experiment okay. if uh, wait, wait, you know wait, wait, more wait. urbane and open minded people suddenly say you know what i'm going to take a flyer
1: on this school it's it's, it's ground zero for i think an essentially important change. We have people moving to Churchill to intentionally be a part of the community beyond gentrification. Um, there's um, so East End Fellowship is an intentionally segregated, not segregated, integrated, intentionally integrated church up there. Um, church Activities and Tutoring is um, an organization where couples move to the neighborhood and open their houses for tutoring. And as people move there, they're having children and intentionally you know, sending them to the public schools. Hmm. With the idea that this is how they really want to be a part of their community, so it's not just the the gentrifiers per se, but there's some more intentionality to it,
0: Professor Martin, you've been pretty outspoken on how college for your college, the the full sticker price experience uh, with fraternities and physics for poets and um, you know, study abroad and everything is is really not for everyone. And that there's been a big rethink about this. In the wake of the Great Recession, where you have a record number of 20 somethings living with their parents, people with Ivy League degrees who are not gainfully employed. And there's been this idea out there go deep or go cheap, Mm. right? You either go for the big time schools. Yeah, exactly. um, Mm. And and in the middle is this controversy right now of vocational schooling. I mean, who, Mm. you know, you always hear about Germany. Germany at least knows with students, certain students you have to fish or cut bait, certain Mm. students it tracks, um, you know, by the seventh or eighth grade to. uh, uh, people who can do industry in its middlestadt, or, or, or not kind of go the liberal arts route. Uh, that is, that is a, a very dangerous thing to talk about in the United States because it almost suggests that you're preordaining. Somebody has to decide that a student's not going to make it.
2: I, I think that's one of the fundamental issues is that as, as parents and as a, as a society, um, the idea that we're placing limits on children early in their lives is unattractive. Uh, we're a land of opportunity. If you work hard, you can make whatever want you want happen. And when you tell a child that they're um, not qualified for higher education or for particular professions, I think it turns off um, people at a very deep level. And yet- when you look at the success of many students that have gone through uh, vocational programs or gone into community college colleges in programs that are vocationally oriented, the students have done very, very well. Um, some of them come out with earnings that are substantially higher than those of the average um, four-year college graduate. And as a result, I think that um, it's really the stigma that of not attending four-year university that drives people away from some choices that for the right for the right children, for the right, for the right kids, uh, would be better suited. And um, there's a big value in the right four-year university system. It can benefit people um, from all walks of life, but it is the case that it's not, in my opinion, for everybody. And I would love to see, um, and I think this Obama program may be the beginning of that some move to elevate the notion of the two-year degree uh, for for people and have that be more vocationally focused. Um, and it was the case when I was in high school and I'm sure it is still today the case that there are vocational programs in some high schools and I think that that's also a, a, terrific, a terrific thing to do. In fact, I was recently in a meeting uh, that brought together leaders around the city of Richmond with the secretary of... Commerce and the Secretary of Education of Virginia to talk about, for instance, how do we create environments for entrepreneurship and innovation and um, technology training in our Richmond City schools? There is a real push to make that happen. But amazingly today, it's the case that there are many high schools, even good high schools in the city system that don't have any training in technology whatsoever. Um, where it's it's just so minimal that you wouldn't um, think of it as being um, technical training. Uh, I believe for I believe for instance that coding is is really part of the new literacy. I believe that that when we think about what students learn, that things like coding ought to be elevated to the level of having to have a foreign language requirement, and maybe more important than things like upper level mathematics for certain students. Um, that's where I think a lot of um, work can be done to try to help engage those students so that they have uh, more successful lives after school, which I define as being lives in which there is happiness and an ability to
1: take care of oneself rather than you know simply earnings. I, I, Html changed my life. I mean, I got out of uh, my four-year degree, I got an art degree, so I know what it's like to graduate and not have marketable skills. Um, I looked at the numbers for Armstrong High School, um, the past two years, and the number of students getting career and technical uh, credits there has more than doubled in the past three years, um, and the number of actual students earning the credits is rising uh, to almost match that. So there's definitely some kind of direct connection going on, you know, in, in a school that I think um, it certainly needs it.
0: Full disclosure: we're talking about the new thinking and the value proposition of higher education lower education, education in between, vocational education. Stay with us. Full disclosure, thank you for joining us. Uh, Professor Eric Martin, Uh, I have this uh, essay written by Professor Angela Romans of Brown University, a noted uh, scholar on uh, education, risk, and reward. And uh, she wrote an essay, it was at the end of 2013, that pretty much said the wrong people are having this conversation about four-year college versus vocational. Let me, let me read an excerpt. When I hear adults advocating for more vocational tracking and training for young people, they are usually well-educated, upper-middle-class professionals. They're probably as well-intentioned as my brother, want the best for the U.S. economy, and want to increase opportunities for other people's kids. The problem is that they are having this conversation solely about other people's kids, not theirs. None of my friends in Scarsdale or Wellesley or Palo Alto want their kids to have more access to vocational education. They want their kids to go Ivy League or at least get into the most selective college they can. And why wouldn't they? Uh, you you responded pretty viscerally to this. I mean, you have a counterfactual example. You have, uh, your son's a senior in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. You you know you you're, you're well to do. You you've availed uh, your children of any opportunity they want. They've they've been able to travel. Um, you know they're not they're not starving. They've had access to opportunity and choice throughout both in the private and public school system. But what what are you what are you thinking with your son right now?
2: Well, one of my sons, he's a senior. Um, has um, a a very strong interest in a particular field in aviation. He has achieved uh, the level of private pilot uh, when he turned 17. He's working for a startup in the aviation field based in Boulder. He works remotely. He's doing well financially with that and has a a fairly large following in the aviation world. from. uh, blog that he started, a website he started uh, a couple of years ago. And the question has emerged whether or not it makes more sense for him to build ours, in essence, a vocational training environment, um, perhaps even going to a community college or a local college while doing that versus going to a four-year university. And um, despite our family having a high level of educational attainment um, at the parental level um, and valuing education very highly, we're having a very open discussion about which path makes the most sense for him. Is he is he in private school? He's in private school.
0: Do you think that was a, va- I mean, was this a K through 12 investment for him?
2: This was a K through 12 investment for him.
0: Let me ask you, what do you think about that investment? Did that help him make the pivot into uh, a vocational track, albeit a very high end and, yeah. and rewarding vocational track?
2: I, you know, it's a it's a terrific question, Robin. And I think um, any parent, that's, that's what I do. Yeah, I that's what you do, questions. and you do it well. Any any parent um, who uh, invests in a private school for their for their child is probably likely to validate their decision. Um, that's human nature. It's what we do as human beings. But the reality is, uh, I think um, a thoughtful person probably today steps back and says, "Where was the value? Not that it's valuable generally." For, for me, I think the value for Swain uh, in attending a private school that might be, might be different than had he attended a larger public school is that he was surrounded by people who also had high aspirations and for whom achievement in some field, in the aspiration to achieve in a field, was the norm. It is the norm. And so while he was not um, particularly interested in playing team sports, as an example, he still wanted to um, make his mark. He still wanted to strike out on his own and to do that at a fairly early age. And I think that the school encourages that. I think the school, for instance, he's a a bit of a traveler. He spent um, a good deal of time last summer in Jordan and Israel. And um, the school had Swain speak to the entire upper school about that experience, along with a Jordanian friend you who's have also yourself, engaged. You
0: have yourself a man child here, a 17-year-old mm-hmm. man child. Why do you have to send him to the whole beer pong, four-year well, travel abroad meal plan
2: right. experience? And that's and, and that really is, the I think, the reason that it's uh, uh, more legitimate to have that conversation. And by the way, he's earning money now. He is earning money. His, uh, if you were to annualize his earnings, he's doing as well as the average college graduate. Um, so there's, you know, there's a real question about whether or not it makes sense. Um, he has some pretty specific reasons about why he is interested in four-year university, and I think they're good ones. He wants to be part of a large university environment where aviation is not the only thing that he's exposed to. So he wants to be broader because he recognizes that life has lots of twists and turns and the broader education might allow him to respond to those better. He wants to form networks and have friendships and build lifelong relationships that he thinks will occur in that kind of environment. And, you know, I think lastly, he recognizes that employers, once he leaves the university environment, high school environment, still value the four-year degree in a way that is um, important for your career advancement. And the question is whether that um, value of the four-year degree by the employer um, is really just a gating mechanism Mm -hmm. or a requirement to be able to achieve what the job needs. And in fact, uh, the government has studied that and uh, suggests that uh, of new jobs created, only about 37% require a four-year degree wow john i mean john murden
0: you know you know that i'm a a, a a big fan of what your wife does she's a big player in the restaurant scene here in richmond and i remember
1: she came to richmond to go to vcu to study was it music um she was interested in music she wanted to write for rolling stone but i think she did um like uh mass mass com, mass like com.
0: so are the, these were skill sets you know her education and this is a previous show that we will refer to on, on the education of an almost an accidental restaurateur was mm. it was it was the school of hard knocks it was working It was cleaning tables it was dealing with she uh, started
1: waiting tables back in high school
0: difficult yeah. customers and then an opportunity kind of a baptism by fire and there was a bankruptcy in the restaurant she worked with and she ended up you know through sweat equity getting uh, ownership to this property and and that's really where her schooling was um... You know, we can ask her point blank if you if you said to mom and dad back in Pennsylvania when you were fifteen, you know, I'm running away from home and I'm gonna be a waitress, they'd say, hell no. But if you you know you have to spend all this money, a lot of people have to take out crippling amounts of debt. I'm still that paying for mine. Yeah. You're still paying for your debt. Right? You you were you were a teacher. We don't you know, Teach for America would defer some of this debt, but you put in eight or nine years trying to give back to the system and and you're still paying your debt. And what would you have done differently? I mean, I will ask Kendra ultimately what she would have done differently. You can't see, you can't see that crystal ball in the future. I, for example, thought I'd be, you know, in the second grade, I
1: thought I'd be a brain surgeon. I had, I had never had a clear idea of what I wanted to be. And it was always um, just kind of inventing things as I went along. My, f- my first four-year degree um, was, was good. That it set me up for later on so that I could get my master's in teaching once I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Um, But for her, and I have a couple other friends who have essentially vocational careers that spent some time in college, but she she got her degree. They didn't. Um, But, you know, a plumber, um, uh, a contractor, and she's in the restaurant business. They all own their own businesses. And for, you know, they've always all made more money than I ever did, um, especially when I was teaching.
0: Do you feel like you need the masters? That you needed the masters, the theory that you were taught. I mean, compared um, to what you learned yeah, in the yeah, trenches.
1: Yes and no. Um, I think at a, at a more typical school, I could have. And, and there were moments when I could really apply, you know, teaching. Um, I think I need a, a more specialized education to be teaching where I did, and they they failed me on that.
0: They did. Yeah. And could you compare what the opportunity would have been, say, at teaching at one of the top prep schools here versus uh, well, yeah, well, one I, of the most downtrodden I, public know, the, schools?
1: the, the gosh that the um. One of my professors also taught uh, – she taught uh, reading, I believe, at St. Christopher's. And so we'd go to that school sometimes for our classes. we be in their environment, and she'd teach us theory and how they apply it there. Or She also taught at UVA. So, I mean, we were – I had a great education. It just wasn't quite applicable to the scenario I was in. You know, I needed maybe – you know, Montessori, she started off in the slums of Rome. You know, we need something that reinvents – that hits the neighborhoods where we're at.
2: I think that's true and I, I think I know who your professor was and she was actually a terrific uh, terrific teacher. Applying in that, um, in that environment where uh, you're sort of in the Lake Woebegone of students, where everyone's above average, um, you know, is, is a really different environment than what you experience when you are um, teaching in an in inner city school. Um, teaching is a, is a really difficult career. People don't realize just how hard it is day to day. Um, Even The challenges you face even in a university environment are large. Last semester, I had one section in which 50% of my class was English as a second language. Hmm. Um, The reason for that is University of Richmond values very much international experience, which I think is terrific. And that's both inbound to the school and people going out. It has one of the highest levels of uh, study abroad of any uh, school in the country. But in that environment, you start realizing that your homework assignments to people who have English as a second language take them almost three times as long to complete. Well, that's not that different
1: than people who have struggled reading in general. Yeah, students, you know, two to three or four years behind grade level reading, whose parents may or may not be able to help them out with stuff, who who may not have um, space at home to focus on their work. It's yeah.
0: Now, Professor Martin, you talk about uh, you know at the upper ends of the socioeconomic mm-hmm. rungs, um, that there's a crowding out going on. When you when you seize on this concept mm-hmm. of go cheap or go deep, I mean go right. IVs or go state right. school intuition, you know, in state tuition. I think there was a stat in the Wall Street Journal last year that the best uh, uh return on investment in terms of lifetime earnings versus what you shelled out to go to a four-year program was UVA right. for in-state students. So everybody wants to send their kid to UVA. That's right. Or William & Mary. I mean, we are unusually right. blessed here in the state of Virginia. And California has the same problem That's right. with, with Berkeley and UCLA. And That's increasingly, right. you're seeing it at UNC Chapel Hill. Correct. Um, uh, but you're saying that this is unfairly penalizing good students who are no longer
2: exemplary students who can't afford to compete with Ivy-caliber colleges. Well, the the challenge, um, I think, at a state level – Uh, where the state is providing significant support for the university system is whether or not you um, are serving the students of your state primarily um, or whether the budgets that are set really require the schools to drive themselves toward having more out-of-state students and international students who can pay and do pay higher levels of tuition. I mean, they pay full freight. And so that's really the issue. And there are really kind of three core models in the United States in higher education. The California model is one in which a very small percentage of students come from out of state, particularly at the high-end schools. Then you have schools um, like the University of North Carolina, which has traditionally had about 15% of students coming from out of state. And then you have schools like the, uh, the University of Virginia um, and the state of Virginia schools. and. My recollection is perhaps Michigan, another very high-end public school, where about 30% of the students, or sometimes more, come from out of state. Well, when you have more and more folks trying to get into those what are known as public Ivies, the UVAs and UNCs of the world, from out of state, from out of the country, then your in-state students who are competing for those same slots obviously get crowded out um, as the bar rises. And schools want that bar to rise. The schools do better as they have a higher caliber of student. They have better graduation rates. They have um, better success after college. They're able to raise more money downstream. And as a result, you then have what would be considered very good students, perhaps not Ivy League-capable students, but very good students who are now going to schools that 20 or 30 years ago in the state of Virginia would have been considered the second tier they've now become elevated, and they actually have higher SATs and ACTs and GPAs, which then drives people down another level. And so what happens ultimately is that you have a group of students who are good, kind of solid B, 3.0 students, who are going to schools that might have been community college caliber? Years but then, aren't ago. they upping the game at those schools? Yeah, well, and and is so there a trickle down. So there, I so the so what happens at all of these schools as they start to grow is they're sort of an arms race, uh, and that arms race is around things like um, dorms and uh, student commons and on-campus dining and. Um, athletics, and that sort of thing. And um, where I think that there's an opportunity is focusing and finding opportunities for four-year universities and two-year universities um, that are really much more heavily focused on academics purely, which is what you find in European countries. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I'm not suggesting every school has to be uh, out of the same mold, but I think having an alternative school, um, think about a Cooper Union. As an example, in New York, where um, you know the school was set up to be free and stayed that way for many, many, many years, um, but where the surrounding um, uh, city was really the part of the campus, as opposed to the campus being standalone.
0: Also, you know, take take a look at a UCLA or Berkeley, or how difficult it is to get in as an Asian American Californian. I mean, yeah. people um, demographically who've so availed themselves of that opportunity there who uh, were the top of their class, and and people have complained that it's crowded out, other Californians, more common Californians academically. Mm. Uh, You know, the interesting thing is, uh, John Merton, I read uh, a couple weeks ago a pretty galling essay about a South Korean millionaire. He's one of the biggest entrepreneurs in cram classes. And there's a culture there that, you know, no rest for kids, it's all about achievement. It's actually one of the most miserable societies in the world for children, but it's all about family pride and achievement, and you talk about uh, students abroad who are learning uh, pre-algebra in the third and fourth grade, and who uh, oftentimes their parents will save up and send their kids to university in the United States. We have a we have a, a, a crisis in some people's eyes in the United States that it's no longer, you know, uh, the bust in and the bust out's competing against themselves here. It's it's you're competing against a brave new world of really hungry international students who are willing to pay up for the premier fruits of American higher education. Well, that's, I mean, honestly, I know I know And you that, would never have been a millionaire uh, professor. I mean, would, would, would society have valued you as a kind of a cram,
1: cram prof? Yeah, you know, I, I don't even, I know the one school I taught at, and it seems so very far away from that. I mean, our, our kids, we were just working so hard to get them to a sort of a baseline level of high school achievement. You know, the idea of cramming to compete against, um, you know, Korean students to get into Princeton or even UVA was Im- impossible to imagine. You know, I had one student who made it off the UVA on a football scholarship. I was insanely proud of him. But, um, you know, that's what got him out.
0: Interestingly, though, it's the Ivies who have since talked, you know, they've they've espoused a lot of debt forgiveness for the middle and lower class people. You talk to the Harvard, mm-hmm. Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth's of the world. They're like, we're not getting our message out enough it's, to at-risk youth.
2: Well, that's and that's true. I mean, then in fact, and so um, I guess when— um, when Faust came into Harvard, one of the first things that she announced as she toured the country was that she was going to ensure that Harvard made uh, the school affordable to anybody, regardless. Of their ability hey, yeah, to pay. truth
0: be told, poorer people do not pay sticker price for like. Well, did somebody tell me, Wake Forest is sixty thousand yeah. dollars a year now, all in. Well,
2: probably all in, and and and. But it's not as far afield as Ivy League schools. A lot of people don't realize that the University of Richmond for families under sixty thousand dollars will make the school free for those students.
0: Interesting. I believe you guys, and the dean's going to kill me. There, I think you shampoo the squirrels at the University of Richmond. <laughs> that is a that is one picturesque campus.
2: It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful, very small school with very very bright students Um, what i what i love about the university of richmond is that they have taken the financial um, uh, benefits of many many people over the years that have donated to the university and have turned that around in a program where if you can actually meet the requirements to be admitted to the university of richmond it is a needs blind admissions policy and if you then um, have a a uh, father, mother or, or a couple who are raising you who earn less than sixty thousand dollars, you're assured of being able to go to University of Richmond. That that is the way that universities are able to help high achieving but lower income people. But the question elevate. is
0: getting the message out to them, yeah. right? Well, I, I think about your students, John, and where are they now? Well, honestly, I don't even
1: I don't even know that the cost of college is what keeps keeps the kids out. I mean if you if you're I mean my students were relatively behind. By the sixth grade, and they weren't getting, they weren't speeding up at that point. It was just becoming more and more of a problem, um, according to the 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 state's um, scorecard report card for schools. Armstrong has a sixty percent graduation rate. It, um, the school you you taught at it was the the high school that my students would have gone to. Was it sixty percent? Maybe it was lower. Um, the state has a different number because they count those de- those, those uh, degrees that don't mean much. Um,
2: well, do you do you you know what the um the five-year graduation rate is from, on average, from all U.S. universities? Tell me. 57%. Wow. Five years? I can see that. Five-year graduate. In other words, now, of the people that graduate, 78% go full-time. Yeah. So what what I believe is happening is that the people who um, are lower-achieving as they go through um, – lower-achieving as they go through school, are then coming out, and if they manage to get into college, are then working part-time, which then puts demands on them that keeps them from finishing.
0: You know, full disclosure, I could have really gone for sixth or seventh year of college, but um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Stay with us. (music) Professor Eric Martin uh, talk to us about debt—the uh, new thinking about debt—and and saddling yourself with ridiculous amounts where um, you're not about to enter a workforce where joke jobs are abundance and in abundance, and you can pay this debt off easily. It's it's following people around uh, for decades.
2: Well, the the debt issue is one that um, that parents are thinking about. And uh, and students are thinking about as they're applying to school, and because you have these low graduation rates, uh, so people take on debt, go part time to school, probably to work to be able to support themselves while in school. Their rates of graduation are are quite low relative to people that go full time, and yet they're still saddled with the debt from the time they were in school. Um, I think that the um, you know the whole process of taking people who in fact are incapable of carrying the full freight of university um, is an important one to consider, because we know that students that go full-time to school tend to complete at a much, much higher rate. But coming out of school today and having large amounts of debt in an environment where you've, and I, I think you were mentioning earlier, that you had come out of undergraduate with a degree that was not one that was likely to get you paid very much. So when you come out of university and you don't have a degree that is widely sought um, and having that debt, it throws you right back into the environment where you're going to live at home. And in fact, the rate of millennials living at home at least once after college is quite high. Um, And that – when people look at the millennial generation and talk about how narcissistic they are and sort of a me generation, the reality is that they have one of the most difficult times in history to be able to be graduating. Um, from school, the most difficult times getting jobs, and the millennials are the most educated of any generation ever.
0: Now, John, you know you go back to your experience. What could uh, Uncle Sam, maybe the Department of Education, state, local level, done to have better incented you in college to feel like you? You know, you weren't settling if you were going to go and teach at-risk kids. Was debt forgiveness a big um, issue? Was, um, was training? I mean, obviously this is a societal thing, and every president takes office and says he or she's going to be the
1: education president, but to no avail. Um, you know, I came to that choice a little bit later in life, probably around 30, 31. Um, and there are programs that will forgive some of the debt for teaching in Title I schools. Um, but because I um, messed up my student loan payments earlier on, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, it didn't apply to me. No, I blew. I blew it. It would have given me like seventeen grand. Um, money would be a big, big piece of it. Um, but I think, honestly, teaching is hard enough at a public school that you have to really want it. And I don't know that the government can do anything to make people want it that badly. Because if you don't want it, you don't stick. But I see. I see. You know, just by dint of you two sitting together here, um,
0: uh, the, the confluence of this conversation and all that you guys have in common is. There's a lot of promise for private universities to maybe sublimate some of their education and their, you know, their students. They're worried about them being placed. What what better cross pollination can you have than than teaching students to maybe share some of their surplus of knowledge with with at risk kids? I mean, you well, talk about a return on societal investment.
2: It's funny, we, John. We were talking before um, before we got on air about a program that I'm working on with some university students today, uh, a nonprofit or a social startup that's designed to create volunteerism on demand so that um, students and adults um, can be pre-qualified to go into schools to teach, um, read, mentor students, and also work with nonprofits Mm -hmm. in the community, Habitat for Humanity, Meals on Wheels, um, and do that um, in a way that fits the very busy schedules that students and adults have in their lives today. Interestingly, in an environment where you have these um, terrific students in a very uh, bucolic environment like University of Richmond, when I raised the idea to my class about being involved in this and helping to set this program up, hands went up across the classroom. People wanted to reach out because to you the know the perception
0: in in the university. If you go to Churchill, they think of they think of University of Richmond as this other world. It's this yeah. tony, leafy part of town, and 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 the sides don't cross pollinate. There are other schools here who better serve. Kind of the uh, the urban less advantaged uh, student who's coming in who disproportionately
2: needs financial aid. That's correct. And but what's interesting is when you st- when I start talking to my to my students about um, their interests, many of them and these are students that are primarily in the fields of entrepreneurship and innovation. So they're people as I like to say they're not boring. They go do. Um, those students are already involved in nonprofit they're already involved in social programs. They've Mm -hmm. taken that up on their own. Um, And I, I think that people are looking for ways to connect and give back. And I think that the boomer generation is going to do that as they age as well. But we've got to make it lifestyle compatible and the busyness of people's lives stand in the way. But I think it is important to get students out and working on that.
0: May I go on an indulgent one minute detour here? Um, to all you listeners out there, some of whom might be uh, people who attended high school or college with me, I, I am so sorry to um, all the women, tragically, I never gave time of day to because I was so focused on my studies. That is uh, an eternal regret of my life. I mean, all you wonderful people in in high school, you you know you know who you are, and you know, I'm married now. that ship has sailed a long time ago, but um it is it is a regret of mine. I mean, I bought into this social compact that just, you know, study hard. We had a controversy at my high school. I'll send you the article. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. There was a death threat against the valedictorian. Uh, you know, this whole shakeup with the top four people. you were expected to take six AP classes senior year. We all wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. And then I end up in college and I see a bunch of people who, you know, they're third, fourth generation Princetonians. And they're like, it's not about the grades you get, man. It's about who you meet. Relax, have a joy. And I was like, what is this? I got to keep up my GPA to keep financial aid here. You know, and I kept I kept doing that. And I took the, the job out of college. And I actually have lots of regrets. Hmm. And, you know, to, to bring this back down to earth, mm-hmm. Eric, and when we say college is not for everyone, there's a whole new school of thought right now. Bill Gates talks about it. Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel of yeah. of, of PayPal, uh, and it's almost like an elitist VC centric argument that you should be able to take some of the best, most motivated kids from high school and uh, induce them to not go to college. This was lampooned in the the HBO show Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and you came up with this idea, like almost like the the. Uh, the Eric Martin uh, uh, highly what is it called? What is that? Uh, Michael Milken, the highly certain letter, or something like that. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the highly
2: confident highly letter. Highly confident letter. The, exactly. You will
0: effectively um, you will effectively endorse a student who comes to you and says, "Look, here are my acceptance letters. I got into Yale. I got into Penn. I got into Brown and UVA. But I, I want to have the courage of my convictions and I want to do something entrepreneurial. So you out there will 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 kind of." Um, not public republic. This fact that all right, you don't need to squander the four years there. Or go and drop out. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, long story short, this kind of controls for this idea that it's more about your uh, inspiration and motivation and clarity of
2: of of uh, of of kind of um,
0: what is the, what is the word? It's uh, ambition at eighteen.
2: Well, I th- you know the the, the issue that w- that one faces and and the the question in the data. If you really get down to Um, the studies that have been done, is whether attending four-year university increases lifetime earnings because of correlation or causality. Hmm. And I don't believe, I certainly have never read a study that convincingly argues that it's causality. It may be the case that people who in fact aspire to four-year universities and have the wherewithal to go to four-year universities are inherently ambitious, are inherently and, ambitious go-getters. and go-getters and they do better, you know, throughout their careers um, with earnings. Um, but I don't want to suggest that, that four-year universities are not the right path for the right students. The issue I think that, that you see from Bill Gates and Peter Thiel is that, um, that it's not right for everyone. That there are people that need to consider alternatives, that, in fact, there are other paths that one can walk. And, and maybe the idea that, you know, working to create achievement, to work to create a new achievement doesn't really pay off at the end of your lifetime, that there are other paths that one can take. Um, there's an Alan Watts um, speech that you can find online that talks about what if money didn't matter? What would you do with your life? And and it's a beautiful, beautiful um, presentation of the concept that we've sort of bought into a bill of goods. Education, to me, is a terrific path for people to follow. Four-year education is the right path to follow, but you need to do it purposefully. One of the things that I found, John, you said earlier when you entered college, you really didn't know quite what it was that you wanted to do. Um, The bulk of children, um, I think, as they go through high school, don't yet know what they want to do. And we contrast that with what you described earlier in Germany, right, where someone else helps you decide the path that you're going to take somewhere in the you middle. You look
0: like you are destined to cut Wusthof knives, young man.
2: <laughs> go to the left line. Right, exactly. And that that in the United States is unpalatable. It's, it's but stigmatized. I would, but I would love in schools to have a much more rigorous pathway of of opening up opportunities to students, letting them see much earlier where they want to go. But what's not fair about that, Eric, and this, John, I ask you, is a,
0: a lot of these students cannot... Um, leave financial concerns aside. I, you know, there are people who had to take uh, vocational track. I remember in, in high school at age 14 or 15, they got permission to work during the week and it was an opportunity cost. There was time that they'd be away from class. And your students, right, if you were to follow this up into middle school or senior high, like you have to
1: bring money. You're typically dealing with a single parent. And and honestly, that would be a great opportunity, I, th- I think, to bring in money. If you need the money that bad, maybe you'd honestly... It sounds un-American, but in service but, sector jobs, well, it,
0: chiefly. I mean, I'm not well, mistaken here. Well, you're not getting,
1: you're not, you're not, you're not getting an apprenticeship like Billy Budd or something. I mean, well, no, but I mean, shoot, if you can be a plumber or a sign painter or whatever, you know, if, um, a contractor, a, a, a welder. I mean, folks that these guys make good money. You know?
0: But the reality
1: is that students who
0: self-divert or are, di- are diverted from circumstance in middle in, in middle school and high school are predominantly going to, s- to low paying service sector jobs they're not they're not scaling a learning curve of any sorts there's no true um, that's the structure isn't no, there. There's true. yeah, there isn't. There isn't a system that kind of takes you in. I remember, you know, I'd watch UHF TV as a kid or something, and the guy would come on. You know, Apex Tech will teach you air conditioned repair. If you don't have a ride, we'll come out and pick you up, and the DeVries and everything. But that doesn't really appeal to people. Uh, before the end of high school, right? There has to be a, a you know my, my question, Eric John, is there true choice? Do people realize that you know it's not it's not just such a binary thing, college or bust
2: we know we know that we know that there's not um, real choice. We know that there are, are significant studies that demonstrate what we talked about earlier is the case that, lower-income, lower-achieving people don't realize the options that are available to them. And even those students who are high-achieving, low-income <laughs> fail to apply to the best universities at the rate of similarly qualified students from higher incomes. They simply don't believe they can. I got to tell you,
0: it's an alienating place
2: well, for yeah, I mean, to, a to...
0: lower-income person to kind of go out of state, to have to you know, take a work-study job you 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 still can't block out things that are going on at home. I mean, I'm speaking in generalizations here, and we will, in the future, have real students who are doing this. But you know, uh, to step back from this all, it it's fascinating that there's a shakeout at, at the upper income spectrum right now, where you know you talk about your son saying he might well go to an aviation program, he might well, you know, he could he's been to Jordan. He's come back and lectured people on Jordan. He sends you pictures. From, I mean, he puts he puts a 30 year old adventurer to shame. It's a whole
1: different world, whole
2: different world, whole different right, world. right now. And, and by the way, just to put this in context, because it would be easy to look at that as being something that um, was afforded him because we had the means to send them him. The truth is he paid for the entire thing. He paid for the entire thing by working. He works because he created a blog that got noticed by a startup in Boulder, Colorado, who hired him because of his skills in writing.
1: I mean, he also grew up in an area where he had social capital and family right. educational right. background to right. like be in so, that position.
2: Well, then that's and and so the, what? What I I guess what I'm suggesting is that that having the educational environment and having the social capital and and being and being shown the inspiration. So I look at this model as being one in which there has to be education, inspiration and resources. Mm-hmm. Right? He had all three. Yeah. Right? He was clearly advantaged. But it was his own work ethic that allowed him to go on that kind of adventure and i think that that is the the uh, you know that is an advantage that only someone in his position could have your kids when you were teaching 6th grade weren't even dreaming of that kind of adventure. Well, John, what is what is the 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 ideal age of intervention and the, the the one the
0: one variable that you feel like in your experience all those years in school that like you could come in and that that puts in that spark of motivation or inspiration? Like, shoot, I see. You know, for me personally, it was this problem solving competition in the sixth grade that took us to the University well, of Michigan, and I saw a college campus, and I was like, I want this.
1: Yeah, it's that's the thing. You know, you had an opportunity to do a specific thing that got you there. Um, my students had fewer oppor- innate opportunities, I think. There are, there are groups doing amazing things with small groups of children and getting them hooked up and, and blowing their minds up to larger places. There's um, Churchill Activities and Tutoring, and they have a private school, Churchill Academy. We've got a kid that I knew was really bright in middle school and went there. He's going to U of R. He's already there. He's going next year. Um, there's Peter Paul Academy, Robinson Theater. So the
0: incremental there's- dollar, be it, be it kind of private fundraise money or public educational capital, should go
1: to what? if I give you the chance to write that check. Small groups that are showing the ability to really get stuff done with smaller groups of kids.
2: I I agree with that. Um, John and I were talking earlier about a program called Podium that's a similar program designed to teach kids at these disadvantaged high schools to write, to express themselves. Um, Those programs um, that that seem to be driven largely from the private sector um, have been making a, a terrific impact. Um, but with small groups of students, and so the question is: Can you scale those programs, or do what you need? In fact, are more people driving small programs, which I suspect is probably the answer.
0: And on that thought, if you guys out there, listeners, have any great ideas or brainstorms or personal experiences you'd like to share, we are on the tweeters at Full D Radio. Uh, you can listen to us on SoundCloud. Uh, we're on iTunes, uh, WRIR, every Wednesday from 4 to 5, and coming soon to CompuServe, Prodigy, and Netscape. So how you like them apples. Uh, gentlemen, Eric Martin at the University of Richmond and John Merton, former 6th grade public school teacher in Richmond, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks My for pleasure. Me. Full disclosure, back at you next week.